You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. So I watched the Oscars last night, all of it. I always watch all of the Oscars. And today I was intrigued by the conversations around the ratings, which weren't good. And it had me looking up the ratings for the Grammys, the most recent other award show that was a universal success. Everybody who watched it raved about it. And the Grammys had the lowest ratings ever. So I was looking at that thinking to myself, how much are our habits being disrupted our usual ways of receiving promotions or going out to watch a movie or streaming things affecting the the events and the shows that we used to be so dedicated to. And that includes sporting events. Had me listen to Bomani Jones podcast talking about interest in the NBA feeling down and whether his hypothesis or mine is right. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM channel 80. We're presented by progressive insurance And Fitz, I I was looking at the Oscars and there were so many takes, right? Oh, it was too political, which it really wasn't. There wasn't enough uh, performance, which was very true. The the music wasn't performed live. There's no song and dance. It wasn't all the usual uh, glamour. Um, But a lot of it to me was just the production was going to be the production. Most people were going to watch it or not. And too many people didn't know what was happening, hadn't watched the movies, even though they were mostly available on streaming, and just felt like the disruptions into their everyday life and viewing patterns had sort of rendered it less meaningful this year, which totally aligns with ratings for every single men's professional sport being down last year. Are you with me on the hypothesis that most of what we're seeing of the things being weighed down isn't just a la carte entertainment and streaming everywhere, but that people are just doing life differently, and that is affecting any number of things, even if they themselves aren't consciously choosing differently. A thousand percent, Sarah. And, you know, I'll go back to the ACM Awards where a few weeks ago and they had a dip in the ratings also. And I found myself as somebody that has so much experience in country music saying, oh, my God, the ACM Awards are going on right now. Like it feels like (laughs) the normal ways that we are presented and, and commercials draw people to things and you you get hyped for events. That seems like it's gone right now. And so it becomes harder with everybody changing our viewing habits right now, everybody changing the way they process or or even watch things recreationally. How are you getting fed sort of the same commercials over and over and over again to remind you? There's a reason that you see certain commercials a million times, and, and it just feels like a disconnect. I, for one, as a massive movie fan, didn't even know that the Oscars were going on. And I also felt a little disconnected because... For me, going to the movies is about the theater experience. So there's right. no theater. But, you know, I'll, I'll turn around and say, usually when I go to the movies, it's the previews. Like, I'm the guy that wants to get there early enough to sit and watch the previews because it gets me hyped for other movies coming up. It feels like the same thing is happening across the sports landscape. Usually one event advertises you to the next event, advertises you to the next one, and it keeps you fed. I, I feel like everything right now is far more disconnected than that. Totally agree. And I think we're getting our news and promotions and everything through much more siphoned off streams that we're selecting. And if we're spending much more time on, say, social media and then streaming things without commercials, without breaks, without context, we're separating ourselves from the things we don't choose. So targeted advertising might be getting to you by virtue of the ads on your internet, but it's not the same as sitting down to watch a game and having the ads that you're sitting through. It's not the same as you know, maybe watching your favorite show live on network television and seeing ads for other things throughout it. It's, it's totally changed. And I was interesting, and it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. 
as I was thinking about this, I also, it was finally warm out today, which is why my nose sounds like it does. I guess I have allergies. What a wonderful thing to add to my list of issues right now is just to suddenly realize that I'm allergic to nature. Um, but I went for a lovely walk and I was listening to Bamani Jones podcast, The Right Time. And he was talking about what feels anecdotal. I don't know if we have any actual numbers that 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 show that people are less interested in the NBA or not talking about it as much, but I agree with him. It feels that way this year, that so much of the of the game is hypothetical, that people just aren't driving it with that star power, with the big storylines. And he said it's LeBron's fault, but not in a way that he's blaming LeBron, but just this feels different because of LeBron. For the last 10 years, LeBron James has been the dominant figure in NBA storyline generation, right? Now, this is after he's become an MVP and all this stuff. Like, we've had this before. But when he made the trip to Miami, when he decided that that's where he was going to go, everything was just kind of centered around that team. Then LeBron goes to the Lakers, and that was the interesting thing. And then he got hurt, and then they didn't make the playoffs or whatever it was. But since then... There's been nothing really, like, truly captivating about the NBA. And then he said after that, uh, it was kind of a long clip, so I cut it up, is LeBron interesting? Not is LeBron great? Not is LeBron the greatest ever or the greatest right now or any of that? Not those conversations, but is LeBron interesting right now? And that stood out to me because I do think he's not new to the Lakers. He's won a title there. I don't know if people are as concerned about, is he going to get two more and get to six? And does that change the conversation around Michael Jordan or not? I think everyone kind of feels like you're already in your lane. You either think LeBron's the best or Michael's the best or someone else, but those titles won't change it. I do think that as much as we make fun of things like the heat index, do you remember that ESPN's Mm -hmm. devoted task of, of, of reporters and, and segment of the internet devoted just to every single time they pick their nose down in Miami. We make fun of that. But that drives interest in a way that I think this year the, the storylines are disparate. It's the Lakers try to repeat. The Nets are a super team. Do the Bucks matter unless they do something in the postseason? What's really up with the Jazz? But all of those stories have been interrupted by injuries and the players not being available. So we keep having the same conversations. If they're healthy, when we get to see them all together, let's see what happens in the postseason. And it takes us out of the moment and the present. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and and Sarah, that uh, I'll go back to the movie analogy. Like sometimes you have plots where it feels like the characters aren't properly developed, and that's what it feels like we're getting this year in the NBA. Like in a dream world, Brooklyn would have come together and been dominating all season and playing at such a level that we'd feel so hyped about it. We'd say, oh my gosh, nothing can stop this, but maybe AD and LeBron can. Like that was the dream situation I think NBA fanatics were hoping to get this year. And instead, because of the injuries and really, I mean, the basketball, if you talk to any of the analysts, if you talk to purists that watch it all the time, they'll tell you the basketball has been clunky this year. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Fine. But when your product isn't as much fun to watch and when the stories aren't developing the way that everybody thought they were going to develop and when you've created a mindset that until the playoffs happen, all of it could be for nothing. I'm not sure what really gets everybody hyped for this. It feels like we have a bunch of character actors and side stories without that main, you know, first person that we all gravitate towards. And that doesn't make for a great movie. It just this year in the NBA, it feels like everybody's just sitting on the sidelines waiting for it to get interesting. And it is a real point that LeBron, while he may be great, uh, still is maybe not as interesting because there's nothing new to talk about with him. Yeah, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You're right. We don't have – we also, I think, one of the big things we often do is look for the team to hate 
or the antagonist to the protagonist. And, you know, there was a year actually here on Spain and Fitz, or it might have been Spain and Company, tough to keep track, where we did stump speeches of all the teams that weren't the Warriors, if people wanted to find a team yep. to root for against the Warriors, because the Warriors had been so dominant, it felt so inevitable. And of course, that was the year they didn't win it. But it felt so inevitable that people needed someone to root for because they had someone built in to root against. The Lakers aren't really an enemy the same way the Heat were, right? The Cavs aren't really the lovable loser or the little engine that could the same way they used to be. It just feels like the storylines are incomplete to your movie reference. We don't have the blockbusters. Uh, And and I want to get into next your hypothesis about how the NFL doesn't have those either and yet is managing to sell us indie films masquerading as blockbusters. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. It's Spain and Fitz coming up. The NFL side of selling us something. Is it more sizzle than it is steak? It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Talking about whether or not the NBA has an interest problem, but maybe it's a sales problem, and maybe it's a sales problem that the NFL has figured out how to work around. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance in just a few minutes, by the way. Former number one overall pick in the NFL is going to join us on the Goodyear Hotline. You don't want to miss that. We're brought to you by My Computer Career, training for a better life. So, Sarah, here's my... My thought process on this as we were talking earlier about the NBA and whether or not LeBron is interesting enough, are the right villains in place, is interest down, all of these different factors that can come into it. And it really hits me this week with the NFL because this is draft week. And as you know, and as everybody rolls their eyes, I am like a kid in a candy store on draft week. I get so <laughs> excited. It's my favorite sporting event of the entire year. That is so, so sad. I know. I know. But my, my team stinks. So I'm never going to watch them win a Super Bowl. It's all about hope. But that's the thing. Like I was talking to an affiliate earlier today and we were talking about the draft and it it really hit me. Like most of these kids that are drafted on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, which by the way, you can listen to all of on ESPN radio as most of them are drafted. Most of them are not going to be successful. Like best case scenario for a lot of kids is they're going to be meh. They're going to be okay. A lot of them aren't going to make any rosters and very few, if any, out of this draft class will end end up being Hall of Famers. Yet we get this excited every year about why this matters. I'm sitting here in a world where in the NBA, I'm I'm sold a, a bill of goods that the regular season doesn't matter at all. And in the NFL, I'm taking a draft that doesn't even impact games right now. And I'm selling an entire league of fans that this is the moment everything turns around. That's a sales pitch that's brilliant by the NFL. Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons why I think this works because the NFL draft has become a made-for-TV event in a way that many doubted and scoffed and laughed at early on when ESPN and others uh, decided to make it so. What do, what do you mean, make it a TV event? They're just calling names. Well, now, of course, it's this huge thing. And to your point, even though NFL rosters are really big, there is always this feeling that if you get the right guy, it's going to change your team's fortunes. The same goes for the NBA on a much higher scale because if you get the Zion Williamson, that's one-fifth of your starting lineup versus the NFL where it's one phase, one player, you know, of many. But but I think with the NFL, the parity is what matters. In the NBA, if you're drafting a top player, that means you were bad. And the adding of that player will help, but it's not going to guarantee you anything, especially in the modern NBA where the winning teams are multiple superstars. And you're probably not adding that number one draft pick to another superstar on a team that was bad enough to pick number one. In the NFL, any given year, 
there are there are favorites and there are those who put together back to back successful seasons as a result of personnel and front office and everything. But there's also this massive unknown. So they can sell you this sizzle and convince you that it's steak because we've seen teams do that quick turnaround by virtue of one or two players. Now, usually that's going to be specific positions, and there's only so many of those in this draft. But I do think, especially with quarterbacks, understanding that you could be looking at somebody, one person, that gets drafted and changes a team for the next 10, 15 years is thrilling. Especially when you consider like all the behind the scenes. And this year, you look at like what the Falcons do could change everything that comes after. Who drafts up and, and changes spots and you know, trades away their pick could change everything that comes after. There's so much mystery there that I think isn't isn't available anywhere else. So I, I kind of get how they sell it to us, even if have these guys you never talk about again. But at, at the same time, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, I would argue to that point, it feels like the NBA should have been able to do the same thing at some point with the NBA draft. But most of the time, most people are sitting there clueless after about the eighth pick. And, and the same thing's going to happen. Look, I, I'm not going to... Uh, you know, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. What uh, I'm, I am very glad on Saturday that I'll be surrounded by some amazing experts on ESPN Radio. Because as much as I've worked in college football, I am well aware that there are going to be people picked that I just don't know, and that's why it's important to have a big group of experts. But realistically, that's happening five, six, seven picks into the first round in the NBA draft because they're not able to sell the stories. Like the NFL has found a way to take this little moment, you know. And I'm a big believer that the end of the NFL season. Season is it's like a relationship you're in a bad relationship you break up right then free agency you start to remember that you really liked your laugh and then the draft is like when you remember the good times you have and by June you're back together right so this is that midway point but the NFL has sold all of us on oh my god this running back is going to be so good or this running back doesn't have value like we'll be screaming and yelling about the possibility of success or failure and it's such a variable like the the system they're in the coaches they're in the place they totally. go all of these things make such a difference but we're not acknowledging any of that. We're just plowing Well, well some because, of us do. Uh, well, some fair. of us are like, draft grades? For what? Nothing has changed. <laughs> like, what? Uh, uh, draft grades? They've been played anything. Like, you can't even tell usually for a year, sometimes two. The one thing I will say, Fitz, though, that I disagree with in your take is that part of the reason that the NFL, first of all, I think you are unlike many others in that you're still paying attention day two and deep rounds in. I think a lot of people watch the first round or two, and that's enough for them. I also think the roster sizes allow for that many more players to play a role. In the NBA, the reason that you don't watch that deep into it is because those guys aren't going to really participate or do much, and they might not even make the team. Right? There's, there's a big difference there. There's such a smaller concentration of talent in the NBA that you don't need to go deep into the draft and still have it be relevant the way you can in the NFL. Is there some spot, though, where, like, I, I feel like part of the problem, and, you know, this is not a new take for me, Sarah, but part of the problem is I use Giannis as this perfect example. And I'm going to compare Giannis to Aaron Rodgers, right? Aaron Rodgers wins an MVP, doesn't go to the Super Bowl. And we immediately look at the Packers and say, how in the heck could you have wasted that kind of a year from Aaron Rodgers? In the NBA, Giannis turns around, wins two MVPs, goes into the playoffs, doesn't win it, doesn't get to the finals, and we say, oh, Giannis, man, there's a problem with Giannis. Like, there's this weird right. moment and a weird no, disconnect. No, because Giannis is one-fifth of the starting lineup. If you're the MVP, the expectation for you to be able to get your team to the finals and to win it is much higher than the MVP of the NFL, who has zero weapons afforded to him and whose team decided to kick. 
right? And, like, <laughs> we know what's going on with the Packers. And that's the difference, too. I think, like, there is there's such a there's such a weight which both benefits and it makes things difficult for NBA players. It's all on you. Like, we have to repeat over and over again, wins are not a quarterback stat, right? When we try to compare the greatness of quarterbacks and use wins, we understand that that's such a flawed metric. That's not quite the same for NBA players. You could be on a trash team as a star, but for the most part, your impact is going to be so much more felt that we can decide whether you've been a great based on whether your teams were great. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I'll also acknowledge that I think the fact that the NFL season is not the marathon that the NBA is, that the NHL is, that Major League Baseball is, allows them to really have ramp-up time to tell stories. And I, I think that is I'll, – I'll, I'll say that as a fair other side of it too. Like there's a moment where we finish football season and everybody's just looking around saying, well, now what? And for NFL fans that aren't college football fans, the now what is simple. It's now I'm going to dive into all these people I didn't watch over the fall and I'm going to learn about them because they're going to be great – NFL players like there is a process and I don't know that because of the length of season for the NBA Major League Baseball and the NHL I don't know that they have the time to invest in the stories that come out of lower levels I'll say that in fairness there yeah and I mean also us media gas bags sure have a whole lot to do with selling every parts of every part of this the NBA draft the NFL draft and I would say that I've never felt more buried by mock drafts and what ifs and hyperbole than I have this season of the draft. And I think that's the virtue of there just not being other major stories pulling us away. So we're left filling a ton of space and content with, well, what about this mock draft? Well, what about this mock draft? That being said, it's going to be the most interesting draft ever. And you of should course listen to all three you're days gonna, on ESPN you're gonna crush Radio. It. I mean, that's, I'm just saying. Also, if you like watching it digitally, I know some guys that will be on the live stream there, so hang out there. Coming up, a former number one overall pick in the NFL talks about the pressure of playing right away and what advice he'd get Trevor Lawrence. You'll hear it next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Play them to not play them. To get him on the field, to sit him, what's the right strategy with the number one overall pick at quarterback specifically? Well, rather than try and guess on it, let's ask one. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel Lady Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, all of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline where we're going to go directly. We're joined by former NFL quarterback and uh, obviously number one pick of the 1993 draft from the Patriots, Drew Bledsoe, Drew, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Trevor Lawrence, in most estimations, will be the top overall pick. Looking back at your career, if you were picking somebody today to come in and play for your franchise, would you put them on the field right away, or would you give them time? Man, that totally depends on the entire situation. You know, it depends on, uh, you know, one, is the is the kid ready to you know, and does he demonstrate in practice that he's ready to go? But it also becomes bigger than that. Can you protect him? You know, because like a, a lot of times it's uh, when, you, when you get drafted number one overall, uh, unfortunately, you know, unless there's a big trade, that team earned the right to pick number one overall by being pretty awful the year before. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have an offensive line that can protect uh, a young quarterback, that's one of the factors. Um, and then what else do you have? You know, do you, I mean, do you have a guy that can that can uh, keep that seat warm until he's ready to go? So it's it, it varies from situation to situation, and and you know, it seems to me like Trevor, you know, based on his skill level uh, and his football acumen, he's ready to go. Uh, so their big decision in Jacksonville is going to be whether or not they think they can protect him and uh, you know not risk getting him hurt. I want to get back to the QBs, but since you brought that up, I I wanted to ask, there's this question around 
the Bengals of do you go get a tremendous game changing, uh, you know, offensive lineman that can give the protection that you need to a, a young quarterback that we saw what happened last year when he didn't have protection, or do you go out and get him an incredible tight end weapon that's going to help him move the ball down the field as a quarterback? If you're Me. Joe Burrow, which is more important to you? Man, that's a tough. That's a tough one. Um, so I was blessed with both when I was young in my career. I had a left tackle, Bruce Armstrong, who should be uh, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he had to, He was assigned. He had to block Bruce Smith twice a year, every single year, and did an amazing job against him. And then I also had really kind of the prototype for today's great tight ends and Ben Coates. So I was blessed with those two things, and they were great security blankets. Um, if you have to choose between the two, I think then you go look at, you know, the specific guys that are available. I mean, I know Penny Sewell out here in Oregon is regarded yeah. as a, kind of a generational talent uh, as a tackle. Uh, and so, so now you've got that really important <laughs> position locked up for a decade, right? Uh, and then you got this kid out of Florida, this tight end, who may be the same way as a tight end. So um, that's a tough call uh, for them. But, they, but either way, if they go with one of those two guys, they're going to have a guy that's going to really help out Joe Burrow. We're talking to former NFL quarterback Drew Bledsoe, obviously the number one overall pick in 93. So, Drew, we've talked a lot about the inexact science of scouting quarterbacks in the draft, and frankly, more teams get it wrong than right. Why? I think when teams get it wrong, they're looking at the wrong stuff, right? Now, I was, you know, I had a, I had a great workout coming into the draft. Um, you know, had the you know teams come out and orchestrated a, a good workout, you know, there in, in Pullman. Um, but, you know, throwing the ball and arm strength and 40 times, you know, at, for quarterbacks, man, that's a really small part of the equation. You know, some of the most successful quarterbacks of all time, you know, you look at Joe Montana, you put Joe Montana in a workout uh, against, you know, other quarterbacks, uh, you know, even probably in his draft, you know, he's not a guy that's going to go down as one of the all-time greats. But when you put him on the field and you have, you know, intelligence, accuracy, uh, anticipation, um, you know, resiliency, leadership, you know, all of those intangibles uh, are in most cases more important than the things that you can measure. Things like, you know, how far can you throw a ball? Well, dude, I think one time in my entire career did I try to throw a ball as far as I could <laughs> in the game. You know, it just doesn't matter, you know. Uh, that just simply doesn't matter. Um, you know, once you have a certain level of physical competency, it's the other stuff that really determines whether or not you're ultimately going to be successful. Drew Bledsoe with a Super Bowl champ, four-time Pro Bowler, 14-year NFL career. He's here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You know, when it comes to those rookie quarterbacks, too, it's not just, as you said, the protection, the scheme, the the system, the, the whether the franchise is well-run, but also patience. And it feels like now, way more than when you were playing, both coaches and players have such a short leash. Do you notice that with these young quarterbacks, that they're never given a chance to actually grow into the position? Yeah, I mean, it was still impatient back then a little bit. There's just more attention drawn to it now. Right. Um, but, you know, but, you, know you look at, you look at, uh, at some, of, some of the guys that have gone on to be, you know, hugely successful have gotten to sit and wait for a little bit. You know, uh, you know Tom Brady sat for a year, and, and he was a great sponge. He learned, you know, he was in my ear all the time learning and trying to, you know, figure out what he could take me. And it turns out I taught him too well because the jerk <laughs> took my job and obviously went on to be, obviously went on to be a huge nobody after that. But, totally. but, uh, but 
you know, and then you, yeah, and then you look at uh, you know Aaron Rodgers sat behind Brett for a little bit. You know, you look at the, there there are examples of guys that that have benefited from being able to sit and watch for a second. But then you also have a lot of guys that started day one that that go on to be successful. Um, you know, and I do think that there is a huge amount of impatience in a lot of situations. And um, but when you look at the organizations that are run well from the top down, that's not as much the case. You, that, that's where you have some organizational patience. Um, you know, you get the right guy, and if you do have the right guy, you, you know, you get in and and uh, you know let him develop and and uh, you know and trust that it's going to come around. But if you're the but if you're the Jets, you just keep changing head coaches and quarterbacks every couple of years, and uh, you know blame it on them. But, but at some point, at some at some point, at some point, you know, not all those coaches were bad, not all those quarterbacks were bad. You know, right. maybe you got to look upstairs a little bit before you uh, before you start throwing more quarterbacks and and. Uh, um, coaches into the great abyss. We're talking to Drew Bledsoe, former <laughs> NFL quarterback. So, Drew, any of these guys that are picked, let's say in the top five, any of the, let's say we just got to run on quarterbacks. We get four or five in a row that go at the top. There's such a pressure that comes with being picked that high. What's the trickiest part about navigating that on top of also transitioning into being an NFL quarterback? You know, I think you actually hit on the toughest part, which is all of it. You know, you're you're uh, there. There's so many changes that come at you right away. You know, in, in college, you know, we're all pretty sheltered in college, but especially as a college athlete, you know, you're told, you know, where to go, when to be in class, what to eat. You know, your training table, you know, study hall. Then you're traveling. Like your your whole world is really pretty scheduled for you, and it's really pretty easy. Um, and, but then you get to the league and all of a sudden now you're in a new environment. You're the figurehead of a big organization with all kinds of media attention. Um, all of a sudden you've got money for the first time in your life, which is awesome, but it also comes with a lot of responsibility. Um, then you have, then you got to go step into a huddle with, with a bunch of grown men and try to lead that group while you're learning a new offense and new personalities and new timing. And then you get on the field and the game's way faster. So when you put all of those things together, uh, it's a really, really big challenge, uh, far bigger than, than I think any other position in sports, you know, to come in and be successful early on because you're dealing with so many different things. You know, the, for me, the nicest thing was, was once we were on the field in practice and we were on the field in game day because then it was only football. If it's only football, you can, you, know, you can get rid of all the other stuff and then you can just play ball. And that was, that was sort of my refuge was practice and game day because uh, the rest of it could be a little head spinning. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio talking to former NFL QB Drew Bledsoe. Number one overall pick of the 93 draft for the Patriots. So let's talk Patriots quickly. Last year was a big changeup after two decades of Tom Brady. A massive adjustment for Belichick as we're seeing him handle the offseason differently. And now the first time with a real quarterback dilemma, they have always been able to draft and build talent. Um, they went out and got Cam Newton. He'll be back. Do you see them making a move here to try to grab one of these top quarterbacks? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, right? Uh, you know, I, I truly don't know. And I, um, you know, there are five at least in this draft quarterbacks that, that it seems like uh, anybody would be happy with. Uh, the problem is that there are a lot of picks ahead of them that are looking for quarterbacks. There are a lot of teams ahead of them looking for quarterbacks. So, you know, whether or not they're willing, because I think they have a lot of draft picks, it's whether or not they are willing to package a bunch of those draft picks, you know, to move up into one of those spots. Because I think it's going to be, um, a fairly significant offer to move up into into you know I don't know up into the top seven or wherever you have to go to get one of them. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. I really don't. I really truly don't have any insight as to what they're actually going to do. I would really like to see Cam though um, 
have a year with a full complement of, of weapons. You know, last year they were, uh, they were pretty gutted, but, you know, with injuries and, you know, and Edelman, and they just didn't have a lot of dudes. Uh, they've gone out and obviously improved their tight end position, uh, may make some moves in the draft this year. So I, I really would like to see Cam have another year at least uh, with a full complement of weapons and another year in that offense to see what he can really do because I know he's phenomenally talented. I know they love him in New England um, inside the organization. Um, so I really, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that he um, has at least one more year, you know, to really, you know, show what he can do with the real offense. Drew Bledsoe with us. Before we let you go, I have to ask, since you're in the wine business now, what are we drinking Thursday night for the draft? What's the wreck for all of us? <laughs> you know, you should be drinking some Cabernet. You know, you're sitting on the couch. You should have some uh, some Walla Walla Cabernet. Ah. Uh, a little, uh, little, uh, little double-back Cabernet from out here in my hometown. Washington, um, not Napa cool Cab. Transition. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. No, we're, we're, no, we're Washington where the real wine is grown. We've been <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. We've been, top, top, we've, we've, been, uh, we've, been, we've been top 100 wines in the world, what, I think four times now. Uh, we're kicking ass on Napa every day across the board. Um, and not just us, but all of us around us, man. It's uh yeah, they, we're uh, no, it's it's really cool being back in my hometown, having a wine business and, and making stuff that really is world class is really fun. Double back is the name. I'm on the website. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. I love a good cab, so uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll give it a shot. There you go. True. Thanks right for the on. time, man. We it. appreciate thanks you the, coming on. Thanks for the plug. Appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> True Bloods on Spain. If it's brought to you by Goodyear, helping you, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. I'll let Sarah recommend the wine to me. We all know that she's You have terrible taste. I, I have terrible taste. All right, coming up. There was an epic matchup in the NBA over the weekend. The question is, as we've been asking all day, does it mean anything? We'll answer it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Over the weekend, we had the uh, the big game that everybody was going to have their eyes on. It was going to be Lakers, Mavs, Luka versus the Lakers. And what's uh, Anthony Davis look like now that he's back on the court? I was watching it, uh, and I, all I can say, Sarah, is that it felt like realistically, the, the Lakers looked like, I think the Lakers look right now. Like, AD looked a little rusty. The team uh, looked a little lacking. They also were missing a couple other players going into the game, and the Mavs went out, and the Mavs were getting thumped and then came back. By the way, the Monday Roundup brought to you by AutoZone. Get in the zone. AutoZone. Surprising that the Mavs were able to come back to that level, but also not, considering the Lakers were shorthanded. They were without important elements, and AD's rusty. Like, I just don't know what we can take away from this Lakers team right now. Yeah, it's really hard because what's going to happen is we're going to we're going to be watching them try to gel together where where Davis and Drummond get to know each other and Le- LeBron eventually comes back and assuming what happens is what we expect which is at full strength and healthy this team is the favorite then we'll forget all about this and we'll feel totally secure in the fact that we said ah these losses don't mean much but if the Lakers slip down into those play-in games and something happens where the Lakers get bounced in the first round, all of a sudden we're looking back and saying, well, this isn't that much of a surprise. Look at how much they struggled. Look at how much time people – you know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah. all about revisionist history with this, and that's why there is a part of me that says, you know, three straight losses. You know, this is a team that – Remember the Clippers? I kept saying they'll be fine despite having guys in and out of the starting lineup. They're used to playing different lineups. They're going to have a lot of depth. And instead, 
the Clippers really disappointed last year. I, I don't know that that's what happened with the Lakers, but I don't think we can totally, you know, scoff at those who are looking at the latest and saying, this doesn't look good. Well, especially I think the the point about the play-in tournament is significant because the Lakers right now hold a three-game edge over the Magic to try and get that play-in, to, to avoid the play-in, I should say. That's a that's a lot of games right now, but you never know. And if they continue continue to free fall, they find themselves in the play. And now we're having a much different conversation about the Lakers in general. That being said, I, I don't care who they're playing in the play. And if LeBron and AD are both healthy, I'm still going to take them. I just I, I'm, I'm I'll continue to oversimplify. In the meantime, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. <laughs> I, I don't want to over laying that what? out there. No, I'm just I just throw that out there every time. Uh, you won't. You know I'm all in on you know the Lakers somehow figuring it out, and I'm all out on the Nets. I'm just going to keep saying it loudly unless I'm wrong, in which case I'll need to take a week off after the NBA Finals. But I'm all out on the Nets. It sounds like though I'm not the only person that has a hot take about the Nets, as Stephen A was on first take and had plenty <laughs> to say about KD and Kyrie and how they'll feel when it comes to choosing Brooklyn over the Knicks. The New York Knicks are the team that's buzzing. The New York Knicks are the one stealing headlines. Everybody is talking about the New York Knicks. So I got two things to say, Max Kellerman, as it pertains to that. Number one, the Brooklyn Nets must go to the NBA Finals. If they don't get to the NBA Finals... It will be indelibly imprinted that the New York Knicks are the story and the Brooklyn Nets are, well, whatever, they're good. But that's what people will say about them. That's number one, which leads me to my second point. I want to state for the record, whether they admit it or not, that if the New York Knicks are in the playoffs and the Brooklyn Nets don't win the chip, KD, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving will regret Oh, the day go. they pass on becoming a Max, new York I can't. You know when they say, like, prisoner of the moment? That's not even of the moment. That's of, like, the millisecond. The idea that they would regret going to the Nets, a super team, because the Knicks, who are having a good run and I still believe are just a couple games over 500, are getting some publicity... Come on. I, I listen. I'm not dogging the Knicks. I'm oh, I'm so sorry. The Knicks are now 7 games over 500. They're third in the Atlantic Division. It's an impressive run. Tom Thibodeau is doing fun things. This is a a, a fun team and it's on the precipice of potentially being super relevant in the near future. But come on, man. That is the most Knicks centric Knicks bias take. You know, you the people aren't even talking about the Knicks more than the Nets right now. Maybe just for like a couple days this week. That's it. Knicks fans today are talking like Stephen A. Yeah. Uh, like if there was a Hall of Fame for bad takes for Stephen A., this one is near the <laughs> top of them. And I spent a, a good portion of my life reacting to Stephen A. Takes. Yeah. I'm telling you, you did a whole show. Night, you did a whole this, show doing it. I, I'm glad I'm not doing that right now because I wouldn't have anything positive to say about Stephen A.'s take on this. This is just flat out bad. I mean, realistically, it doesn't matter if the Knicks are the talk of the town right now. That's fine. KD chose not to go to the Knicks. He chose to go to Brooklyn. And with that comes expectations. If he had chosen to go to the Knicks, the expectations would have been through the roof. So you're comparing two complete, not you, but Stephen A is comparing two very different situations without any context to what expectations do to any situation you're living in. If KD was having the same exact problems with injuries for the Knicks that he's having with the Nets, 
oh man, everybody be calling him ten times the bum that people are right. already saying now when he's just a human being trying to get healthy. Like the the vacuum that you live in as a member of the Knicks is far different than it is for the member of the Nets. And whether the Nets win a championship or not, it's a better experience for Katie, I would argue, because he's able to do it off the radar a little bit compared to what it would be for the Knicks. But furthermore, who cares? He chose the Nets, and he's not going to regret that just because the Knicks are unexpectedly better than we thought. Yeah, not to mention, and it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, because we haven't heard that much from James Dolan in a while, and because the Knicks have been playing decent hoops, we've suddenly erased the fact that that franchise has been a dumpster fire for decades. So if you really believe that a better place to stake your hopes for a super team collaboration held up and supported by a smart front office that can make good decisions around payroll and budget and salary cap and future picks and everything else, I'm sorry. That's just we're just we're we're getting so lost in the moment on the Knicks as to forget that I don't know how they could they they might even be able to mess up a Harden Irving Durant trio. With the Knicks. Until they prove otherwise, I'm sorry for everybody who's going to come in my mentions and argue with me. That's not a place that I think fosters success. Look, I want the Knicks to be successful. For anyone that doesn't know, I have a Madison Square Garden tattoo on my arm, okay? I would love for the Knicks to be successful because it's a fun story, right? But realistically, that has nothing to do with whatever KD is able to accomplish in Brooklyn. There are a lot of reasons he went there, and he's not going to regret any of that because he's on a ride there that's far different than it would be with the Knicks. This is just massive conjecture, and it makes no sense to put the dots together that way. All right, coming up, we'll talk to a former quarterback who has spent a ton of time with the biggest quarterback prospects to get some expertise. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Draft week is finally here, and that means we are only days away from getting answers about not only who the first pick overall will be, but how the quarterbacks will fall and what it means for the future of so many franchises in the NFL. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Don't forget, you can listen to all three days of draft coverage here on ESPN Radio. Thursday and Friday, Kevin DeGandhi and L. Duncan going to be leading a great group that we'll get you through on Saturday. I'll be uh, here for the third uh, third day of the draft with everybody. Also, you can live stream if you uh, enjoy that as well. Uh, I'll be on the digital formats with uh, a whole slew of people on Thursday and Friday. Sarah, I know we got a guest. I got, I, I've got a great draft fact real quick. Are you ready for this? Okay, this I'm ready. Is, this is a nugget. Over the last 10 years, over the last 10 years, the Jets, that all, everybody talks about their terrible drafts, they're actually only the third worst team in the draft over the last three years, or ten years, I should say. Based and on? The, uh, based on, this is a really complicated metric, but our but, span, like spectacular. Like draft grades? Uh, well, no, our, our stats and info group has an analytics that's approximate value over expected metric to measure success of okay. every draft pick. So they have, like, the math done. And in the last five years... Nobody's drafted worse than my beloved Raiders. How do you oh, like that? I thought it was going to be the Bears. You t- no. you roasted yourself. I was no, preparing Raiders myself. The, the Raiders at the bottom of the list. By the way, uh, we only called the Jets now the Black Abyss. I believe that's what Drew Bledsoe called them. That is, <laughs> and that is what it shall be forever. Let's get to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. For that, we'll go to the Goodyear Hotline, where we are joined by John Beck, former NFL quarterback and quarterback coach that has worked with a bunch of the guys that you're going to hear called over the course of the weekend. John, thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it. I'm trying to make sense of how scouts are analyzing a couple of guys, Zach Wilson and Justin Fields, two guys you've worked with that have very different bodies of work. How do you compare two quarterbacks that are very different and also have very different bodies of work? 
Well, I think what you try to do is you try to say, how does who they are fit in what I do as a coach? Um, you know, both those guys have been talked about being certain fits for certain teams. And I know that the teams aren't looking at both of them as being the exact fit. They say, if I put this person in my system, what does my system then look like? Both of them have some things that are similar. They're both really, really good athletes. Um, but they play the game just a little bit different. They both have great strengths to their game. Uh, you know, something about Justin Fields that is just, you know, stands out to me is the big games that he's played in to play on the national level, played in national championship game, playoff games. I love the way that he's played in big games. Zach, this last year, his team had to throw together a schedule, and it's not a knock on the program. What they did, they found a way to get games in. He has the ability to to make a ton of plays, and I know that he would have been chomping at the bit to have an opportunity to play in some of those big games like Justin. just didn't work out that way. But both guys bring a lot of things to a system. If you're evaluating them, you have to say, what can I see on tape? What can I gather from what I've worked with them in the individual times, watching their pro days, and what would that do in my offense? You know, it's it's tough because I totally understand the idea of who who am I putting into what, and if that helps decide – uh, the quarterback, that makes sense in the short term, but understanding how a quarterback can change the future of a franchise over the course of a decade plus, do you sometimes advise taking the person with the highest ceiling, the best possibility of having a long, successful career, and understand that over the next couple seasons you'll have to build the pieces around them to make it a better fit? Or are you of the opinion you go based on, on immediate fit and and make it work? No, I think it's both. I mean, I totally agree with you there. I think that they have to look at it from two different perspectives. If I have to play this person young and now, what does that look like? If I get an opportunity to develop this person and build the pieces around them, what can that look like in the future? If you're picking a guy top five, you absolutely have to pick somebody that you believe you're going to have a chance to develop. Um, but you also have to know that, hey, if, you know, if, if it turns to a point where you have to put him on the field early, that whole judgment process of your pick, what it's going to become, did you make the right pick, that starts then. And coaches know that, just like general managers know that. Everybody would love an opportunity to develop a guy more before they put him on the field, but that's not always the case. So I do think you take the guy that not only you believe can, can make a, a good fit in your offense, but when you pick him, you also may get to do some things you haven't been able to do in your offense. And I'm not using any specific example. I just know from coaches I talk to, they say, well, I know if I go get this guy, I can start doing this in my offense. So the, the offense adapts as well. Hey, I was going to follow up quickly. Do you think, and some of the language you used in there had me wondering, do you think that sometimes teams are picking out of fear of criticism of their pick instead of the right choice or what their gut says? I don't think that they do it in fear, but it's absolutely a part of the equation. I don't think it's the biggest part of the equation because to succeed in the NFL, whether you're a coach, a GM, a quarterback, you have to believe in yourself and your instincts and your pick, right? You've got to believe in that gut thing that got you there. So I think when they pick, they may have to say, hey, my fan base or my whatever, they may criticize this pick, but this is what I believe in. You have to stand firm in those beliefs because if you start wavering, and then all of a sudden you'll have a chance to get eaten up by everything that's around you because it's always people or things or atmospheres trying to pick at you to find a chink in the armor, a way to get in, and you have to just be able to stand strong. But I do think that they do weigh that a little bit. That doesn't carry a lot of weight, but I'd be lying if I said I haven't had conversations with with teams and, you know, decision makers that have said, yeah, you know, one of the things that we think about is, you know, how will this be received? How will it be received? Maybe not even by the, the public, the general public, but also by the locker room. They take into account, how will my locker room accept this person? How will my locker room view this person? 
We're talking to John Beck, former NFL quarterback and quarterback coach, worked with a bunch of the guys you'll hear called over the weekend. And, you know, John, I, I just got to ask you about Trey Lance. And, and look, I, I, I think it's spectacular any time a kid gets a chance to play in the NFL. But you're talking about somebody with such a limited body of work on tape, right? You're talking about a year where pro days don't look the way they've ever looked before. Interviews don't look the way they've ever looked before. But I keep hearing analysts say, yeah, but he looks like a quarterback and he has all the traits and attributes. Well, if that's all it takes to go to the NFL, why even bother playing college football at this point? If you look, throw, act like a quarterback, just wait your turn and go, go play. Like it, It's hard for me to find that connect. Make the connection for me for Trey Lance. So I know it can seem that way, right? And I've seen high school kids that can go out on a field and they can put together a throwing session that just looks spectacular, but they lack, they lack that playing time. And I know the knock, right? People are going to say, well, he played in North Dakota State. Well, he only played in 17 games. There's nothing that he's going to be able to do to change any of that. I didn't get to go through the whole entire draft pre-draft process with Trey. I only started working with him after his first pro day. So I remember thinking similar things, right? Who is this guy? You know, I've only seen highlights of him. It's interesting, though, because he's only got one game from last season for them to kind of, like, go off of. Other than that, it's the year before. But in having a chance to be around the young man personally, uh, he's a great, great kid, great work ethic, approaches it the right way, very talented. I think he has pieces, and I think that that's why people say, man, there's a lot of pieces that are there. He's really intelligent. When I got to sit down with him on tape, when I got to put him on the whiteboard, he's, he's nailing all those things. And so if there are evaluators that know that stuff about him, that got to talk to his coaches, I can see why somebody would say, you know what? He definitely needs to be in consideration for, for those top picks. He, he can't go change his schedule. He can't go change the, like, the university that he played for. That was the place that gave him the best opportunity to play, and he took it, similar to how Zach Wilson this last year. People will always be able to knock, well, he didn't play these teams. What can he do about it? He just went out there and did the best that he could. I believe that Trey did the same thing with the situation, and I know why teams are excited for him, but I can also see the criticism. You're not wrong for saying I'm, I'm holding my breath a little bit to wonder about that tip, or sorry, that, about that pick. I do believe that there's some risk because of those things, and as much as I like him, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about that as well. Uh, you know, in helping him go forward, I'm very aware of, hey, experience is a huge part of this, and I like guys that have had to experience a lot. And it was out of his control, but he didn't get to experience a ton before leaving for the NFL. John, quickly, let me follow up there then, because the opposite side of it is Justin Fields, and he's getting knocked for particularly two games, Northwestern and Indiana, where he was playing the two best defenses he played, but also in a COVID year, also in games where he was missing a lot of people and where they had limitations. So, like, on the one hand, we're saying Trey Lance can't change the fact that he didn't play uh, more more games. But over here, I've got Justin Fields, who can't control all the COVID things, and we're not sort of taking into account his 2019 season. How do we benefit? Like, benefit of the doubt here seems to be applied to one and not the other. But why? I, you know what? I, uh, I'm confused at that one as well. You know, I've had to answer questions over the last few weeks, and I don't understand it either because when I watch tape and when I watch some of the games that Justin played in this last year, uh, he was remarkable in the way that he played. And I had opportunities to sit down with him and, and go over some of his tapes, right? I remember going over that, that Northwestern game with him. I remember going over the Indiana game with him. And, right, it wasn't a great situation to have to play in. He's got his offensive line. Half the guys aren't there for the game. They don't know who's up, who's down, what players are going to be there. If you get a chance to talk to the head coach, he'll tell you just how much of a challenge this season was for everybody on that Ohio State roster because football wasn't going to happen. And then the players went back and pushed for it. And then, hey, it may happen. I mean, it was a tough year. So I've been, I've been so impressed with Justin throughout this entire process. I was impressed with him as a player watching him. When I got to sit down a while and go through his tape with him, I could understand why those things were there. 
and we had some great talks. And I said, look, an evaluator may watch this and ask questions. And he did a great job of responding to all those questions that I had. So for me, I don't, I don't understand it either. I think he's a, he's a tremendous player. I think that there's going to be a team on draft day that's going to get him, and they're going to love a lot of the things that they get in Justin Fields. John, Guys, I know you. exactly what it is. It's like online dating. The less information you have, the more you fill it in with the best possible scenario, and that's what we're doing. I'm being serious. We're like, we haven't seen anything, so we're going to assume the best. And with Fields, we're like, we saw a couple bad things. We're going to over-exemplify that stuff. And that's what we do. It's human nature. It's I will say this, and I've seen this uh, for a long, long time. The guys that are always kind of at the top when this whole process starts, they're the ones that get put under the microscope the most. Yep, 100%. It's like everybody has already said for so many months they're the top guy. Well, okay, well, what, like, what is there left to do but sit there and try to pick at them? And, you know, and, and that's what happens, and that's just part of the process. And I've had good conversations with these guys over the last few weeks just telling them, look, I know it may feel like this right now. You guys are under this big microscope and everything. And some of it may be a little bit frustrating at times, some of the questions you have to answer for teams or evaluators. But at the end of the day, NFL draft is going to come around, and a team that is so pumped to get you is going to call your name. And you're going to be putting on their helmet, jogging out to their practice field, going and earning your spot with them. And that's the exciting thing. John, thanks for your time, man. We really appreciate your insights, your expertise. Thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on all the work you're doing, brother. Thanks, guys. We'll see you. John Beck, former NFL quarterback and quarterback coach, He's worked with Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Kyle Trask, and more. So you'll you'll see a lot of his protégés out there on the draft. That was some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Coming up, everybody's doing mock drafts. Nobody's doing what we're doing with our mock draft. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Oh, we have a couple days leading up to the NFL draft on Thursday. We're actually off Thursday, Friday, while the draft takes over ESPN Radio. Fitz will be doing all sorts of stuff, so... A reminder to keep up with his social media so he can let you know where he's going to be when uh, for all of that coverage. And as we're leading into the draft, not only are we talking about the NFL draft, uh, like we just did with John Beck and all the players involved, but we figured we'd have a couple mock drafts of our own. Not at all related to the NFL. Completely different. Tonight's, since Fitz and I are both noted SNL superfans, we will mock draft the greatest Saturday Night Live cast members of all time. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Fitz, quickly, let's just put this out there. We are saying for our own personal enjoyment of the show, not so much the ones that did the most for the show or were on it the longest or just who well, we it's both. Our favorites. Yeah, our favorites. our favorites. Our favorites. That's a great way of putting it. Unfortunately, during the commercial break, you won the coin flip, according to everybody over there who may have lied. Either way, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy there, but you get the first pick. And this is tricky because we're going to be going back and forth, and you got to be careful about your order, right? Because there's a lot at stake here. But with my first yeah, it should really pick, be a snake draft, but I'm not going to argue. We can just go back and forth. That's, that's fair. Uh, it should have been a snake draft. You're actually right. With my first pick, I am taking Will Farrell. And if Bruce right. Dickinson wants more cowbell, we should probably give him more cowbell. Say, babe. I had to go Will Ferrell with my first overall pick because I, I was afraid it wouldn't be there long It is for a me, great so. pick. Uh, and actually, the other night I was reminded of one of my favorite sketches from him when we heard from the uh, coach that told us he didn't have AC or heating in his car <laughs> because he, and he didn't eat breakfast because he wanted to show up hungry. I just pictured him saying, I drive a Dodge Stratus. Do not talk to me like that. 
Uh, that was that was all I got from that coach. Uh, I'm glad you chose Will Ferrell. He's a great selection. He was hovering around my picks for top five, but I can't say whether he would have made it or not. I know for sure that my number one pick is unequivocal, without question, came to me instantly. It is Eddie Murphy. Uh, ties. <laughs> Be tied, I made all you need to know about me as a human being is to know that by the age of eight, I was going to Blockbuster and renting Best of Eddie Murphy Saturday Night Live and walking around my home saying things like, Hi, I'm Velvet Jones. Do you want to be a hoe? Oh or things like, James Brown Celebrity Hot Tub. Gonna get in the water. Will it make me wet? Yeah. Will it make me sweat? Yeah. Ow. So basically... All the best Eddie Murphy, I can quote line for line. He saved the show literally and was the greatest it's ever been. You know, the funny thing is so far, uh, it, it, he he was the definite consideration, but I also will not confirm whether or not, uh, like, well, I, I'm feeling well, good right now. I'm feeling well, good got, right now. You got bad this, taste, so I figured this would be easy for me. You know, oh, wow, that, that's a fair point. All right, so <laughs> because, uh, again, like, this gets tricky when we're talking about eras, and there's a lot of eras in our fandom I'm going back to Bill Murray. That's going to be my next one. I don't have audio for Bill Murray, but I'm taking Bill Murray as my second overall pick in this. So I have Will Ferrell and Bill Murray so far. It was a big choice for me. There were a lot of close contenders, but Bill Murray uh, cuts through for me. I love Bill Murray in all things, pretty much. But I would say that Bill Murray on SNL was not as much my favorite. Nick the Lounge Singer was great. There was a great sketch with, um, I I believe it was called Swill. The water that came directly from Lake Erie, and the song was Anticipation. Mm -hmm. And he's drinking, and there's like sticks coming out of the water, and it's fresh Mm -hmm. from Lake Erie. There's some great, great ones. But for me, he on SNL was not his best. That came after. And so for me. I didn't take somebody else that was in that same era. But go ahead. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Uh, For me, I'm going to go a little bit more current just for fear that you might take this person. I know you are also a fan. So I'm going Kate McKinnon. And now, mind you, my sweats were so stretched out, they kept falling off, so I just had to kick them off. And now, I'm full Donald ducking it, and I'm hoping down a 45-degree decline with my fun bun and mud gun hanging out, plain view. Oh, my God. (laughs) If you have not seen the Alien Encounter sketches where nobody in the cast can stop laughing when she's around, she's hilarious. She plays everyone. I mean everyone she can do it all especially the male characters she plays on the show are unbelievable yeah this was one of those moments where i thought i might have that pick available to me a little later on so my board is that my my board's a little altered at this point okay uh for my third pick i'm going to go again to to a little bit of the more recent era uh, only because everything he ever did made me laugh and i never thought about it in the time but now I go back and I watch, and I can't stop laughing at it. I'm going Bill Hader next. I've had a Ooh. weird few years. Okay. Oh. Mm. Yeah. So Bill good. Hader. Bill Hader next for me. Bill so, Hader. For my yeah. SNL-themed birthday party, my husband was Stefan. And I know you had your own SNL-themed birthday party because that's how big of fans we are. Yeah. That, that is scary. Um, yeah. I'm going to go back to an older era because, again, this was like peak SNL for me where every Saturday night I knew every sketch, I knew every word. I'm going Mike Myers. On this show, we talk about coffee, New York, daughter, dogs, you know, no big whoop, just coffee talk. And for my birthday party, I was Linda Richmond from Coffee Talk. I'm a little of a clump talk amongst yourselves. 
Yeah, I'm just going to tell you that I had saved my favorite cast member of all time because I thought he would be available. Now you've made me nervous. Same same era, same skits. Dana Carvey was my favorite growing up. So Dana Carvey's next for me. Is your next pick. Okay. Dana Carvey's a great one. Uh, Church Lady is is among the best. Okay, we're running out of time. I was going to save this one for last, but since I might not get to do it last, and I knew you weren't going to pick it because you have terrible taste, Chris Farley. Yeah. My name is Matt Foley, and I am a motivational speaker. Now let's get started by letting me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old, I am divorced, and I live in a van down by the river. Okay, we each picked four. We both win. We're going to put it up. You can vote on who did it best. Jeff Passon next. On this show, we talk about coffee, New York, daughters, dogs, you know, no big whoop, just coffee talk. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Appreciate the update, letting everybody know that Chris Bryan had that grand slam to tie things up. We don't need to get into Dansby Swanson, giving the Braves a lead. Dansby Swanson, by the way, dating Mal Pugh of the Chicago Red Stars, the team that I'm part owner of. So I just told her to uh, go ahead and tell him to take it easy on the Cubs. <laughs> this, is the, this is Chicago on Chicago crime here. It's Spain and Fitz, Air Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline to talk all things baseball, ESPN MLB insider Jeff Passan. Passan, let's start with the thing that all the talk shows are arguing about, all the bloviating gas bags getting their panties in a bunch about is the Bumgarner no-hitter a no-hitter if he allowed no hits, but it was only seven innings? Here's what he had to say about it. <laughs> so uh, what do you say, Passon? If I may just say one thing before I answer that, uh, Dansby Swanson has spectacular hair. Good for Mal Pugh. Yeah. Like that's yeah. A, in a, have you have you seen the flow in person, Sarah? I have not seen it in person, but the lettuce under the cap tells me a lot, and, and it looks yeah. magical. But uh, on the other hand, good for him, too, because Mal Pugh, whew, superstar, ready to explode. There we go. I'm glad that we got the plug-in for your, your Those ownership. Those two kids as found well each as, other. Uh, yeah, my love of exactly. Dan Swanson's hair. There we go. Um, I've never been as, more uncomfortable as... when, when <laughs> this has happened. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> that makes you uncomfortable when I'm complimenting another man's hair? No, just this whole thing. Like, we're talking about the beauty of one man's hair and then, like, like the hotness of his, his significant other. Like, I just, I'm, I'm very Hotness, as in as a player, as in oh. a superstar, as a soccer player. Hey. But, she, I mean, she's hot, too, but whatever. Okay. Anyway, let's get this train back that's on the how, tracks. No, that's how the, that's how the next generation of, of great athletes is made, is it not? That's fair. Yeah. That is fair. I thought a story. Anyway, Madison okay. Baumgartner. Yes, of course it's a no-hitter. Um, I, I tried to put it very simply yesterday. Major League Baseball and the Union agreed to hold seven-inning doubleheaders. Um, if you throw a complete game in seven innings, it is a complete game. Uh, if you get a hit in a seven-inning game, it's a hit. Uh, if you hit a home run in a seven-inning game, guess what it is? It's a home run. So why would a no-hitter not be a no-hitter if it's seven innings, you can argue because the Elias Sports Bureau determined that all no-hitters have to go at least nine innings. Well, they determined that before games went seven innings. 
And if you cannot change the rules, and as my old colleague at Yahoo Sports, Tim Brown, said, you write no hitter with a seven in parentheses, that kind of covers it. Right, like, yeah. It tells you what it was. And, and all, these, all these conversations about what, uh, you know, the number of, of no hitters that are lost in the eighth and ninth innings, yeah, that's, that's very true. Those are in nine-inning games. Uh, in, in a seven-inning game, unless it's tied, you're not losing a no-hitter, and you finish the game with a no-hitter. I, the, the argument here and the anger, Sarah, does not come from the function of the seven-inning no-hitter. It comes from the seven-inning game and baseball fans still being salty about that. And if Madison Bumgarner, a person who might have red ass more than anybody else in baseball, and is about as old school as it gets, says, I like seven-inning doubleheaders, maybe you should listen. All right, so then, Jeff, does the benefit of the seven-inning games in a doubleheader, does that outweigh the difficulty that comes with these sorts of conversations? I, I think that you acknowledge that a seven-inning no-hitter is a lot easier than a nine-inning no-hitter. But you don't take away the accomplishment or the achievement or the recognition of it. Um, it, it clearly, those last six outs are the toughest six outs to get, just based on the number of no-hitters that have been thrown versus the number of times a guy has gone into the eighth inning with a no-hitter. I mean, I, I don't know the number, but I imagine it's in the thousands of guys who have gone into the seventh inning or later with a no, or excuse me, the eighth inning or later with a no hitter. Um, but I, I just, I don't see why people are getting so animated about this. If you finish a game giving up no hits, that's no hitter. It's a no hitter. ESPN MLB <laughs> insider Jeff Passon with us here on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, I don't want to get incensed again as I did before the show listening to DeGrom ask, answer a question about MVP in April. So let's not get into that part of the conversation, but just talk to me about his start to the season. Uh, it's magnificent. Like, I just, I, I am. Uh, I am a baseball fan for a long time, and um, I try not to get too caught up in what's going on there in this particular moment. But what Jacob deGrom is doing is utterly magnificent. And I know it's going to pain you to, to hear me say this, but what Corbin Burns is doing with the Milwaukee Brewers is about as impressive. He's now uh, up to 46 strikeouts. And no walks this season. Tonight, three and a third, one hit, no runs, no walks, six punch outs, 40 pitches, 30 strikes. Um, This is just reflective, guys, of what's happening across baseball right now. Pitchers are too damn good. Like, that's that's just the the reality of where baseball is right now. Do you guys, I don't know if you've seen this, it's been percolating on Twitter for uh, the last 24 hours or so, and Boog Shambi said it earlier today, and I, I talked about it. Uh, earlier this week with with Pablo Torre on ESPN Daily. Do you guys know what the batting average um, in Major League Baseball right now is? Just league-wide batting average, take a guess. 218. Oh. That's actually a much better guess than than you would think because that would be the lowest by, like, a long shot. But right now it's 233. Yeah, it's not good. No, it's... Ratio between strikeouts and hits was the greatest in the history of the game. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Paul, Paul Hendikitis, uh from Get Up. I was I, I was texting uh, texting him a little bit earlier because he's the dork who I go to when I'm looking for interesting things, and he sent something uh, to me. The largest difference in a single month all time between strikeouts and hits. Uh, number three is September 2020 with 496. Number two is September 2019 with 705. Number one is April 2021 with 948. We're going to end this month with a thousand more strikeouts than hits in Major League Baseball. And the fact that the games have been as fun as they are and that there's been as much, you know, as many moments as there have been that have been enjoyable and remarkable and memorable from April while this type of baseball is being played, makes me wonder what would happen if the game actually were good. Jeff, we're talking to ESPN Major League Baseball insider Jeff Passan. I mean, everything I was told coming into the season is that there'd be an adjustment for pitchers and that everything was going to have to change because they're coming yeah. off of a short season and now they're out there kicking butt. Like, what's happened? I mean, if I, if I tell you what's happened, it's going to take the rest of this hour and another, and I don't want to do that. So I will, I will try and give you as quick and condensed and cliff notes diversion as possible. Uh, pitchers learned how to train better. They learned that they could teach themselves velocity. Um, they started using laboratories to concoct pitches with slow-motion cameras and spin. Uh, they found uh, sticky substances that makes the spin even better. They optimized, they iterated, they optimized, they iterated, they optimized, and here you have a bunch of optimized pitchers going against hitters who simply haven't made the adjustment yet, may not be able to. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting we're talking about all this. It's made and fits. We're talking to Jeff Passan. Because as much as Trevor Bauer has some terrible takes on many things, he was absolutely right in what he said about Fernando Tatis Jr. And the point that he made that was most important in it was, it's really hard to hit right now. So when they get a good hit, they should celebrate it because of the stats that we just read off. Like whether or not you always agreed with pimping uh, home runs and bat flips and everything else, now, at least, you know, accounting for level of difficulty, you should definitely be on board with people celebrating because otherwise we're not going to get very many things to celebrate. Just not that many hits, yeah, not to mention think, homers. <laughs> yeah, I think Trevor just wants to do his celebrating too i think he wants course, to use the conor yeah. mcgregor but, arms and, but, and the, but a lot of people are willing to be hypocrites passing at least he's not there are plenty of pitchers who want to get oh. their fist pumps in and still criticize bat flips so at least he's consistent yeah and and I, it's nice hearing the cy young winner say there's no place in the game for throwing it guys um like it, it it's funny though it's like no place in the in the game for throwing it guys for celebrating but you know Bauer accused Fernando Tatis Jr. also of peeking on a pitch to try and steal a sign um, and, and looking for maybe the pitch, maybe the location, maybe both. And Yeah, that you know, seems allowed to me. I, yeah, I, the, Tatis, the outrage on that is, is a bit much for me. Well, here's, here's the thing. That's more a matter of, like, professional decorum than anything. That's all. There's almost like a gentleman's agreement. You're not going to do that. But there are plenty of sign peekers out there, and uh, those guys will often get drilled with a pitch just to just to say, "Hey, don't do that, or you're going to get hit." 
And as lo- you know, if a guy gets hit on the leg there, I suppose I, I it's it's when it gets dangerous when it goes high when it right. potentially hits the like that that's the scary stuff right there. Yeah, to me, it just feels um, like so, if you're going to have a sport where people are blatantly actually cheating, then the gentleman's decorum <laughs> stuff sh- is not something that you need to write think pieces on. Hey, we're out of time, Jeff. Good stuff, as always. Um, I'm sorry you didn't get the last word. That's always my goal, though. Have a great night. Appreciate you, Jeff. <laughs> ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance with insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Passing is definitely the brother I never wanted. Uh, and that's very clear in every interview that we do. Coming up, we're going to do some quickies. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can catch all the show goodies that you miss. And sometimes we do some pre-show or after-show digital-only content. We had a draft, a little mock draft, not for the NFL, for SNL. A little mock draft of our favorite cast members. Not the best, not the longest running, not the most influential, just our favorites. Fitz went with Will Ferrell, Bill Murray, Bill Hader, and Dana Carvey. I went with Eddie Murphy, Kate McKinnon, Mike Myers, Chris Farley. We both had a lot on deck for pick five and beyond. The Belushis, the Hartmans, the Polars, the Wigs, all of them. There's too many. There's just too many. Uh, right now, I'm winning. 55.2% of people think that I won. I think it's pretty tough to take down a Eddie Murphy-led cast of any kind. He's just so strong. But uh, I think we both did a fine job, Fitz. And we we uh, we could go on for literally days because we both love the show that much. Yeah, we're both winners on this one. Like, uh, yeah. there's no doubt. I think your list, though, I mean, I'm, I'm the first to admit I've looked at your draft and thought, man, I would fire myself as a GM. I really cracked under pressure. <laughs> like, Phil Hartman was on my list in big, yeah. bold letters. I didn't take yep. him. I don't know what I was thinking. He was one of my. But, you know, I got so worried about not taking people in the same area. I don't know. I made some regrettable decisions as a front office. We're going to look at the scouting department. We're going to talk about things before tomorrow. You know, make sure that we're yeah. better lined up for tomorrow's draft. I, 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 if, I let myself um, down. If you're feeling any of that stress in your gut, uh, I would recommend colon blow. It's a good way to <laughs> get it all out. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. If you don't understand that reference, Google it immediately. I don't even care if you stop listening to the show to Google it and watch colon blow. You probably blow. just shouldn't listen just, to our show if you don't understand Yeah, if you don't, if you don't understand colon blow, honestly, we don't have a starting point for, for all of us to connect. Uh, we have a couple things to get to in the show before we run out of time, so we have to do quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Okay, so I don't want to make light of anything, but the introduction of Kim Mulkey as the new head coach at LSU after years synonymous with the Baylor women's basketball program feels like an SNL character. She arrived at the dais, uh, of course, decked out in all purple because I'm sure she's got glittery purple heels down there too, takes her mask and literally throws it into a nearby ficus, that's what it looks like, perhaps it's a fern, and says, I'm going to get rid of this because i got a lot to talk about, and launches into uh, a discussion of her arrival at LSU. Um, Fitz, she is a tremendous basketball coach who at many different times, including very recently in the NCAA tournament when she advised that they should stop testing for COVID so that players wouldn't miss the tournament if they had it, um, has stuck her foot in her mouth. And I'm very intrigued by this move. I'm wondering if something's going to come out to tell us what inspired this move. I never would have imagined her leaving Baylor. I'm stunned that she left Baylor, frankly, for where she took that program to, and especially to leave it for LSU. And I think it's funny at this point, you know, you've got 
she's out there ripping the mask off and uh, speaking her piece and on the same campus where Will Wade's an active part of an FBI investigation still for paying off uh, kids to come to LSU to play basketball. So really the basketball program seems to be in tremendous hands. It's, it's uh, good to be in Not LSU. just that. How about she's somebody who told people they deserve to be f- punched in the face if they were concerned about sending their daughters to Baylor during the widespread massive sexual assault and rape issues that they had. And now she goes somewhere in LSU that has seven women currently suing them over not handling title nine complaints, including rape and sexual assault. Yeah. I mean, like, you stack choosing to go there is wild from, you know, somebody that's paid to be an educator at your state school. Like they, there's just yeah. so much to this. Yeah. That it's just yeah. Um, really we'll move on layers. before we say anything else. Layers. Next topic. Quickies. Let's lighten it up. Kyle Shanahan, let's light it up with a little death talk. Uh, Kyle Shanahan, the head coach of the 49ers, uh, was asked post-draft, uh, knowing that they are eyes on a quarterback, if he could guarantee that Jimmy Garoppolo will be on the roster by Sunday. Um, I can't guarantee that anybody in the world will be alive Sunday, so I can't guarantee who will be on our roster on Sunday. Um, so that goes for all of us. Okay, didn't have to go there, Fitz. Uh, seems unnecessary to... <laughs> Talk about Jimmy Garoppolo's existence instead. Like you, when you want to avoid a question so much that you say, I don't know who's going to be alive. George Kittle messaged him on Twitter. This makes me nervous. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a moment where, you know, it, it's almost like a kid arguing in the playground at that point. Like when you when you bring in like that, we might all be dead by then part of it. Like yeah. there's not much. That's the, the infinity plus one argument. I'm not sure what you say to that other than if I'm a reporter. Follow up question, coach. If we're all alive, will he still be on the roster? Like, I, I don't even know what we're supposed to say to that. Really dark right. times. I, I dark feel like, times. you know, maybe maybe coach needs a hug. It's just, maybe. A hug. Yeah, I think he's getting a little stressed about this decision. Uh, it was very, uh, that player's day-to-day, aren't we all? It felt unnecessary. <laughs> uh, next topic. Quickies. Okay, this is wild. It does not feel that long ago that we were all clamoring for Julio Jones to get paid. One of the greatest wide receivers ever. A guy whose worth is very clear to the Atlanta Falcons. And here we are talking about his name being floated as a possible trade. Fitz, knowing where the Falcons are as a team right now, knowing that there's, I think, two more years on Matt Ryan's contract, pretty expensive, that they could be in a position to draft a young quarterback. What do you make of the Julio Jones rumors? Yeah, so this to me has really weird timing to it because, as you mentioned, not only all of that, but the the Falcons are picking fourth in the draft, right? So there's this real question about do they take a weapon and make their team better for the right now and try and go in and win, or do they rip it all apart? This seems like either somebody is leaking this two-tip a draft strategy or they have a draft strategy that is actually, hey, we're going to redo everything. And if that's the case, then we need to reexamine our Atlanta conversation. Like they might be in a quarterback market at this point because they are picking picking so high if they think Julio Jones isn't going to be there then what's the point of drafting Kyle Pitts for example I mean you're you're going to be restarting everything at that point Julio Jones will cost them a ton of money if he's not with the team so you're talking about an epic hit they're taking to the salary cap that tells if they're moving Julio Jones then they're all out on trying to win football games yeah seven games missed last year due to injury the Falcons have terrible cap space issues he's 32 in his 11th season um, would be very strange to see Julio Jones go somewhere. But like you said, it might be a tip-off to the plans that they have for the future. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Um, we don't have time to get to any more topics, so I'll just simply say 
uh, that Freddie and Fitzsimmons are coming up next. And I heard, and I, I can't confirm this, Fitz, but I heard that they have Trevor Lawrence, um, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance coming on the show tonight. All of them coming on the yeah, show? Yeah, that's what I heard. And also I heard they were going to have uh, Barack Obama um, wow. to come on and just talk about it. Actually, Trey Lance will be on KJ and Z tomorrow, 9.45 a.m. Eastern. Thank you, Stodge, for the shout. I was joking. I like to come up with names that feel too far-fetched. But, hey, nice job, KJZ. Freddie and Fitzsimmons next. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.